El is an ancient Semitic word for deity, gods, or God. It can represent true or false gods. To distinguish Yahweh from false gods, El is frequently compounded with an adjective such as Shaddai, Olam, Elohi Israel, or Bethel. For example, Deuteronomy 5.9 reads, I, the Lord Jehovah, your God Elohim, am a jealous God, El. Another example of the compound use of El is found in Genesis 21.22-34, which tells the story of the covenant Abraham made with Abimelech. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and worshipped the Lord, the everlasting God, El Olam. One other example occurs in Genesis 33:20, which tells a time when Jacob built an altar on a piece of land he purchased at Shechem. He called the altar El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Hebrew scholars report that El is used interchangeably with Yahweh in poetic literature such as Psalms and Job. There, El is commonly compounded with words that describe the characteristics of Yahweh, specifically in the construct state where two words are connected by the word of, such as God El of glory, as written in Psalm 29.3, God of knowledge, as written in 1 Samuel 2.3, and God of salvation, as written in Micah 7.7. El may also be qualified by an adjective or participle with the word is, serving as an indication of the qualifier. For example, Deuteronomy 7.21 denotes that God is great. In Exodus 34.6, the Lord describes himself saying he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Later in the series, I will highlight other compound uses of the word El, and you will likely recognize most of them. Elohim, like El, is another general term that refers to deity, gods, or God. Some scholars believe that it is the plural form of El, or that it, along with El, are derivative of the word Eloah. Regardless, the ancient Israelites used Elohim as a common noun for God, much like people today who, irrespective of their religious status, refer to deities as gods, goddesses, or God. However, like Christians and people of other monotheistic faiths, the ancient Israelites believed there was but one true God. Thus, when they referred to Elohim, they spoke of Yahweh, regarding him as the true and supreme deity. In addition, the authors used the term throughout the Old Testament to refer to the God of Israel. The term Elohim is first used in Genesis 1-1 and occurs in the Old Testament more than 2,700 times. However, its usage in Genesis 1-1 is unique. Since Genesis 1 and 2 is a creation account, many people typically associate Elohim with the descriptors creator and judge. Remarking on why that may be an appropriate interpretation, Rayburn and Ewan write, in languages that use several terms for God, Elohim should be translated by a general term and not by a name or title unless, of course, the language has no choice. Some languages have a term or descriptive expression meaning creator or creator God that may be used in the creation story. The word rendered created, which means to bring into existence, to cause something to be, is used only with God as subject and thus suggests that to create is the activity of God alone. Making a similar point, K.A. Matthews writes, the regular appearance of Elohim in Genesis 1, 1, 2, 2, 3, 
rather than Yahweh is due to the theological emphasis of the section. Creation extols God's transcendence and power of his spoken word. Thus, Elohim is preferred, whereas Yahweh is commonly associated with a particular covenant agreement between God and Israel. Then, remarking on the usage of the word created, Barah, Matthews explains that the subject associated with it is always God and conveys the idea of a special activity accomplished only by deity that results in newness or a renewing. Also, Barah always refers to the product created and does not refer to the material of which it is made. For these reasons, commentators have traditionally interpreted the verb as a technical term for creatio ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing. In doing so, it is often contrasted with the verb asa, meaning to make or do, which may have as its subject human activity as well as divine. In particular, asa is used where making involves existing materials, such as when God made tunics from skins for Adam and Eve. As the argument goes, asa can refer to human activity in which pre-existing material is transformed, but bara is used exclusively for God's activity with no presence of pre-existing material. Therefore, it is clear that bara, with God exclusively as its subject, indicates special significance for God as the autonomous creator. The term maintains our focus on the thematic subject of God, who alone can accomplish creation. The declaration of verse 1 without any intimation of competing pre-existing matter is so distinctive from its ancient counterparts that we must infer that all things have their ultimate origin in God as creator. Thorough exegesis of Genesis 1-1 makes it abundantly clear that God is indeed creator and judge. Because God created everything that exists, he holds the power and authority to judge his creation, and that includes you and I. Meditate on that powerful truth today as you worship Elohim, your creator and judge. The book of Genesis, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. Now the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, 
and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, eat according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be light in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens, to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As I've delved into my study of the names and attributes of God, I recognize a pattern that many theologians have. When they begin to talk about God, they rightly do so by referencing Genesis 1-1. But they usually focus on the first half of the sentence, in the beginning, God. They aim to demonstrate that whether God exists is not a question and that the entire Bible necessarily assumes God exists. Thus, every word it contains come from God himself. 
Now, if I were not associated with any religion, I doubt that I could deny the existence of a higher power. The order, majesty, and resilience of nature reveals the awesome and sovereign work of a strategic creator. Even the wonderful design and functionality of humanity with its diverse constituents who are fearfully and wonderfully made to look, speak, think, and act differently and yet be homogeneously beautiful reveals the artistic and scientific genius of a being that exists outside time. And even the very continuity of the creation and its preservation and government teach us that there does exist a God who supports and maintains and preserves and ever provides for this universe. Therefore, that God exists seems obvious. Regarding the obviousness of God's existence, Apostle Paul writes, For the truth about God is known to them instinctively. God has put this knowledge in their hearts. Since earliest times, men have seen the earth and sky and all God made and have known of his existence and great eternal power. So they will have no excuse when they stand before God at Judgment Day. That's the Living Bible version of Romans 1, 19 through 20. Apostle Paul warned the church in Rome about the dangers of denying the truth about God, acknowledging that although a person may deny his existence, they will nevertheless be judged by God, the creator of all things. As a Christian, I wholeheartedly believe that God exists. So I understand why theologians stop at in the beginning God before trying to explain his attributes. However, it is essential to continue reading and absorb the full impact of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1 is the prologue for the entire Bible and the explanation of how life began. First, it reveals God as self-existent, supreme, transcendent being who exists outside time. It reveals him as the creator of the universe and all it contains, and thus he is distinct from his creation. Finally, without stating it, it reveals God as the rightful judge of all creation. That he created everything and everyone gives him the sole right to determine how everything ought to be and judge accordingly. Elohim is a Hebrew word used to describe God in Genesis 1-1, which ultimately means creator and judge. Rayburn and Ewan state that some languages have a term or descriptive expression meaning creator or creator God that may be used in the creation story. When the word created is used in the text, it means to bring into existence, to cause something to be, and it's used only with God as its subject, which suggests that to create is the activity of God alone. Elohim is the autonomous creator and the only one who can create out of nothing. He is the only one who can speak things into existence. Remember that. Thorough exegesis of Genesis 1-1 make it abundantly clear that God is indeed creator and judge and because God created everything, he holds the power and authority to judge his creation. Augustine stated, only the Almighty can create something from nothing. A human being, because he is not omnipotent, makes children out of himself and makes objects out of something else. For example, an artisan can make a box out of wood and a goblet out of silver. A person can make a box, but they cannot make the wood. In fact, no human being can make anything out of nothing. But God, who is almighty, has begotten a son from himself and has made the world out of nothing. 
he also formed humankind out of the dust of the ground so as to demonstrate by his actions that his power is supreme in all things. A.W. Pink's insights provide us with additional wisdom concerning God's ability and sovereign will to create. During eternity past, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Had a universe, had angels, had human beings been necessary to him in any way, they also had been called into existence from eternity. The creating of them, when he did, added nothing to God essentially. He changes not. Malachi 3.6 Therefore, his essential glory can neither be augmented nor diminished. Therefore, God was under no constraint, no obligation, and no necessity to create. That he chose to do so was purely a sovereign act on his part, caused by nothing outside himself, determined by nothing but his own mere good pleasure. For he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That he did create was simply his manifestative glory. So what are the implications of the fact that God is creator and judge? Well, it implies that when we call on God as Elohim, we acknowledge his authority and power in our lives and over all creation. God is all powerful, holy, great, and sovereign. And he is the one true God who created the heavens and the earth and reigns over all things. Creation is God's personal possession. As such, all creation must answer to him. Thus, as Irenaeus perfectly and succinctly stated, in respect of his love, the Creator is our Father. But in respect of his power, he is our Lord. And in respect of his wisdom, he is our Maker and Designer. By transgressing his commandment and purpose for all things, we become his enemies. As we reflect on the name Elohim, we are reminded of his power and majesty. We are reminded that he is worthy of our reverence and worship and that we should approach him with humility and awe. We are also reminded that God is not just a distant and personal force, but a loving and compassionate father who desires a relationship with us. We affirm that he is the one who holds our future in his hands and that we can trust him to guide us and provide for us. We also acknowledge our smallness and need for him and invite him to be the center of our lives. May we never forget the significance of his name and always approach him with the reverence and awe that he alone is worthy of receiving. For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen.